Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. 2020 was a time of shaking and testing, and many think that it was about the board or about lead pastor or senior staff, and others even think that it was about me and, and church renewal. What too few realize is that it was, that it was and still is about way more than a handful of church leaders. The devil wants to destroy your children, your families, your marriages, this church, church renewal. He wants to destroy everything, not just a few leaders. And we're going to look at prayer and how that relates to that and how prayer is needed to combat that in these days. First of all, Prayer is required for empowerment to ministry, uh, to minister, I should say. The disciples failed to help a boy who suffered greatly at the hands of a demon who would often throw him into the fire water in Matthew chapter 17. And so the desperate father sought out Jesus and asked him to help. But before casting out the demon, Jesus rebuked his disciples. Now, Scripture tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16, 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, we do too little of that, correcting and training in righteousness. For what purpose? So that the man, uh, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Jesus didn't just rebuke him because he was mad. He rebuked him because he wanted them to learn a lesson. And I think in this message, Jesus will be rebuking us. But not because he's mad, but because he wants us to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But let's see why he rebuked his disciples, whom he really loved. He said, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Here's a question. If one of your volunteer ministry leaders came to you and said, I tried to drive out a demon, but I couldn't do it, how would you react? Would you rebuke him or her? Or would you encourage them? I know that I wouldn't rebuke them. I would, I would encourage them. But Jesus rebuked them. So in private, the disciples asked him, why couldn't we drive it out, this one demon? And he replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as mustard seed, you can say to the mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you. Is this a contradiction? I mean, first Jesus says, if you have a little bit of faith, they, you know, they could exercise the demon. And then he turns around and he says, if you have little faith, a little faith, like a mustard seed, uh, uh, then, you, then you could. Uh, well, actually, it was reversed. You couldn't, you know, because of your little faith, you couldn't exercise the demons. Then he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, then you can. Which is, sounds almost like a contradiction here. But what was Jesus getting at? Uh, let's look at it by using a process of elimination here. Option one, the problem wasn't that it wasn't God's will. The fact that Jesus was upset that they didn't drive out the demon eliminates that option entirely. Option two, then. The problem wasn't that they didn't step out in faith. They did. They tried, but it didn't work. So it couldn't be that. Well, option three. 
The problem wasn't that the quantity of their faith was too little. You know, like if you just work of your faith enough. That was the problem. We can see that they fully expected that the demon would leave. In fact, they were surprised that the demon did not leave. They had driven out many demons before. Mark chapter 6 verse 13 says, They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Yet this one singular demon in this boy, they couldn't get out. And it surprised them and it upset Jesus. It upset him. Option number four then. Well, the problem wasn't that they hadn't ignored a step in some formula to exercise the demons, was it? In Mark's telling of the same story, Jesus added this. This kind comes out only by what? Prayer and fasting. That's what he says. And we're in a month of prayer and fasting, his stuff and set. Did Jesus mean that when the father brought his boy to the disciples, if they had first prayed and fasted right there on the spot, then the demon would have gone? Is that what he meant by it? Well, that seems pretty absurd. Uh, of course not. If that had been part of the formula, because these were very experienced exorcists, they were constantly delivering uh, people from demons. We just saw that. If, if they had missed a step in the formula, you know, do this step, then do this step, then do this step, oh, and then you pray and you fast, and now you cast the demon out of, out of the boy. Surely if they had missed that step... One in the group would have said, hey, hey, fellas, we missed the step here. Let's go back and, and let's uh, pray and uh, fast. <laughs> Sounds rather absurd, doesn't it? That's because it is. And when we look at the steps that Jesus took to cast out demons, neither did he stop to pray and fast first. He just rebuked the demon and it left. It was gone. And yet he was upset that when they stopped and rebuked the demon, the demon did not leave. And he was angry not at the demon for it, he was angry at his disciples for it. That means that when Jesus said little faith, he couldn't have been speaking of quantity of faith, but quality of faith. So then, what is the right kind of quality of faith? Uh, theirs, was, uh, uh, theirs was a defective faith, evidently. It wasn't a, that there wasn't enough quantity of it. They tried. They knew what they were doing. They expected it. All those things that you hear <laughs> preachers sometimes say, they, they had covered their bases. It was a defective faith. So then, what is the right kind of quality of faith? What does this mean? Well, the comment of Jesus in Mark 9.29 above that we referred to and that, that, I, that I read, even though it's not up on your screens, helps us to get to the answer. What did Jesus mean when he said this kind comes out only by prayer and, in some readings, fasting? What did that mean? In, well, in the, let's step back for a moment. In, in the Garden of Gethsemane, while Jesus prayed, the disciples, what? They slept. 
Jesus said, in fact, he comes back several times and he says, what, could you not pray with me? He found them fast asleep. They slept. But this doesn't seem to be the first time that the disciples slept while Jesus prayed. Think back to an earlier instance. Mark chapter 1, verse 35 uh, to 37 says, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place to what? Pray. Early in the morning, he left. You can, you can see the, the way this is being told, you can tell he's quietly slipping out because everyone else is sleeping. And uh, it says, Simon and his companions went to look for him later, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. They got up in time for ministry. Jesus was praying before ministry while they slept, and the disciples slept until it was time for ministry. Sounds like a lot of our churches. Sounds like a lot of our ministries. It's notable that when Mark says Jesus got up early to go and pray, he doesn't mention that the disciples did too. Presumably they slept in. Now, why couldn't the disciples cast out the demon? Though they had faith, their faith was a deficient one because it had subtly shifted from faith in God's sufficiency to faith in their own sufficiency. They were self-confident that they knew how to do this. They'd cast out many demons. How hard can this be? We know the formula. We've done this many times. We just tell them to get going, and they go. They had the gift of casting out demons. They had the techniques down. They knew the formula, and they had the steps. They had the expertise, and they had the experience. How hard can this really be? They came to believe that the ability to minister was inherent in them. They would never have said it, but their lack of prayer betrayed the truth that they no longer depended on God, but on themselves. That's what upset Jesus so much. They had failed Christianity 101, the basics. Nothing can be done in ministry apart from prayer. Nothing. And they'd failed it. This is a primary reason Southland ran into trouble in 2020. I mean, think about it. No ministry can be done. By, by the way, do you know in Second uh, Corinthians chapter four, uh, 4, verse 4, I mean, think about it. They couldn't move, they couldn't cast out one demon. Do you know what essentially all ministry is about? Dealing with unseen enemy forces. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, the God of this age has, un, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. That means... We are in a non-ending battle with an enemy, and if the disciples couldn't cast out one demon, then what on earth makes us think that any church or any church ministry or any church minister or any pastor or anybody across the country, and we've got a problem like this across the entire country, what makes us think that we can do ministry with programs? 
Jesus rebuked them because they couldn't remove one demon. Because their faith was deficient. Because it was sufficient in themselves. But we have made the exact same mistake in the church across Canada and at Southland. We think that we've got it. We've got it figured out. And we don't realize their faith is deficient. And Jesus rebukes us for it. Not because he's mad at us, but because he wants us to repent, not just own up to, repent of prayerlessness and then turn around and get back up get into our prayer closets personally and corporately as a church so that we can open the minds of unbelievers who have been blinded by the God of this age. This isn't an intellectual battle. This is a spiritual battle that we're fighting. And the primary reason Southland ran into trouble in 2020 is we thought we had it together. We knew what we were doing. That's pride. Remember that the disciples couldn't handle one demon, and, and that's why Jesus was upset. Well, Southland couldn't handle a legion of demons dispatched by the devil who knew we hadn't been praying as we ought. And I include myself in it. And we rose to meet the challenge, and like Samson, we didn't realize it was too late and that the Spirit of the Lord had left us. We weren't filled with the Spirit because we hadn't been vitally connected to the vine through prayer. We have no inherent power. None. I don't have it. Certainly I don't have it. And I don't know anybody else here who has it, and I don't know anybody in all, with all the pastors that I pastor who have, who have it. It only comes through Christ. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's why Jesus rebuked his disciples, and that is why he rebukes us today. Self-sufficiency is the death knell of the Christian and the Christian church. When we spend time in prayer, we are filled with the Holy Spirit so that when we leave our times of prayer, we take God along with us into our personal and ministry lives. And when he goes with us, great things happen. Jesus modeled that for us. Luke says in Acts chapter 10, 38, he says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. That's why. Yes, that's it. Andrew Murray says, when I work, I work. But when I pray, God works. You see? He, it wasn't just, that's not just a cute little phrase. It's the truth. When I work, I work. But when I pray, God goes to work, Andrew Murray said. Well, prayer is not only required to minister, and by the way, I've written on nine purposes of prayer in my, in my mentoring materials, but we're only looking at two very, very quickly. And uh, 
prayer is also necessary to withstand, uh, withstand temptation. So not only is ministry uh, or prayer required, if I'm going to minister effectively and see lives actually changed and transformed by the power of God, if I'm going to change others through ministry, prayer is required. But guess what? If I'm going to survive the temptations and the onslaught of the enemy, I must pray so that I can survive. So it's needed for me to minister to others, but prayer is also needed so that I can survive the onslaught and the temptations of the enemy. We'll see how that works. In the account of Gethsemane, we see two contrasting storylines. First of all, looking at Peter, Jesus warned Peter that he would face a big temptation from Satan. Remember in Luke chapter 22, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. You know what's interesting to me? Jesus did not rebuke the devil and tell him to, to not sift Peter. He allowed him to do it. I'm going to talk about more of that next week. In fact, Jesus told Peter specifically what the temptation would be. He said, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. Now, that's amazing. <laughs> uh, look at Peter's self-sufficient confidence in the face of such a warning. Jesus says, you're going to deny me. Not only will you deny me, it'll be three times. And it'll be before the rooster crows. Wow, that is specific. And in verse 33, Peter replied, Lord, I am ready to go uh, with, uh, with you to prison and to death. Look at his self. Well, first of all, look at his good intentions. Amen. And then look at the self-confidence. Lord, no problem. I, that, that, th hey, thanks for letting me know. I, I appreciate that. But I'm, I'm good. I'm good to go. Uh, I'll die with you. Never mind deny you. I'll not only not deny you, I'll, man, I'll die for you. Again, Jesus warned Peter and the disciples, explicitly telling them that they weren't strong enough to withstand the temptation coming. Verse 46, he, he said to them, why are you sleeping? This is the title of the message. Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So Jesus warned them about what's coming, warned them specifically Peter says, no, no, I got this. Then Jesus turns around and warns him again. He said, you're not strong enough temptation, uh, to, to withstand this temptation. You better, what? Pray. Church, this is a warning that our good intentions are not good enough to face Satan's temptations and trials. Jesus advises us how to avoid failure and temptation, and it's through prayer. Your prayer life is a measure of your confidence in yourself to handle problems and trials and temptation. Jesus said as much. And it is a predictor of whether you will withstand them. Now, did they pray? And the answer is, no, they didn't. They slept again and failed miserably again. All the disciples deserted Jesus and fled while Jesus denied his Lord three times just as Jesus had warned he would. 
But Jesus hadn't just predicted and prophesied, you're going you're gonna to fail and there's nothing Peter could do. He had warned him in verse 46. He had warned him, pray that you don't. But they wouldn't do it. And that's why he predicted it. He knew they wouldn't. And he knew they wouldn't, they'd go to sleep again. That seemed to be the pattern of their life while Jesus was still here. By the way, it changed after Jesus arose. <laughs> and you find them praying all the time. You read the book of Acts. Whoa, ho, ho, ho. They learned their lesson. And therein is some hope for Southland. Now contrast the disciples' self-sufficient confidence with how Jesus handled the coming trials and temptations of the cross in Gethsemane. I mean, the temptation to... To deny Christ, that's, that's one temptation. The temptation not to go to the cross, now that's another level. That's another five levels. How did Jesus handle that temptation? It says in verse 41 to 42, same chapter, Luke, uh, Luke 22. You might want to meditate in that one. He withdrew about a stone's throw uh, beyond them, Jesus that is, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. He prayed like that because of the horror which lay ahead. He had told the disciples he would suffer and was now in great anguish. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. He was under tremendous pressure. He didn't want to go through with it, and that's why he said to the Father, take this cup from me. Isn't there a different way that we can do this? And evidently the Father said, no, this is the only way. But he battled it out in prayer. The temptation Jesus faced in the garden was not to go to the cross. And uh, instead, as he prayed, the Father strengthened Jesus. Now, when we're faced with temptations, one of the reasons we're supposed to do it is not so that the trials and our that all our trials and temptations go away. No, no, no. In this world, you will have trouble. There will be many troubles and trials that are going to come across your path. Many. Jesus does not promise <coughs> to take those away from us. He tells us to go in prayer so that we can withstand them. So that we, we, we can be strengthened in the midst of them. So that we can withstand them. And in verse 43, we see that's exactly what happened. An angel from heaven appeared to Jesus, him, Jesus, and what? Strengthened him. Strengthened him. Prayer would have strengthened the disciples for what lay ahead. But they, their souls were not steely enough because they hadn't spent time in the presence of God who would have strengthened them one way or the other to withstand those fiery trials. So though Peter was forewarned about the trial ahead, he knew what it was. He knew it, it, it wasn't, it didn't blindside him. Think about this. The temptation Peter faced here did not blindside him. He knew it was coming. And yet he failed because he neglected to do what Jesus said and what Jesus had modeled already for him, which would have made him strong. 
So if Peter, uh, but I want to ask you a question. How many of life's trials did you know about the day before? Huh? Usually none. Usually none. So if Peter demonstrated that when he saw and knew specifically what was coming, that he still couldn't withstand it without prayer, then what chance do we have of making it without prayer when these things surprise us? If he knew about it and failed without prayer, then how in the world will we stand when they surprise us if we don't pray? But how about covert temptations and trials? I'm talking now about the hidden ones, the ones that surprise us. Well, we see that Peter also experienced those kind. The first kind, he, he knew what was coming. Jesus warned him, and he still failed. But Peter also faced covert trials and temptations of a, of a sort that are really difficult to deal with. Earlier, Jesus had been teaching his disciples that he must suffer many things in Jerusalem, be killed, and then rise on the third day. But notice Peter's response on this occasion. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Now, that's fascinating, eh? <laughs> Peter rebukes Jesus. That's quite something. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Your plan is not a very good one. It's not logical. It's not rational. To Peter's intellect, experience, and acquired wisdom, the cross looked like a final defeat for the kingdom of heaven. Paul calls it, the, uh, you know, the, the cross is foolishness to them who are perishing. It was perfectly rational the way he was thinking. Little did he know that the cross would be the means by which we would enter the kingdom of heaven. And for this reason, Jesus reacted with a strong rebuke of his own. Peter looks at this thing rationally, logically, and rebukes Jesus for his rational statements. Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter back. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your... Now, here we go. Your mind. We're talking about the intellect and rationale. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. <clears throat> Jesus recognized that these thoughts had been planted in Peter by Satan. And we're going to talk more about this. We're going to develop this more next week. I have some things I want to say about this. And Peter didn't even recognize it. He thought those rational, logical intellectual thoughts were his own. He didn't recognize them as being Satan's. Perhaps that's the reason Jesus said it like that, uh, like he did, you know, get behind me, Satan. He wanted Peter to know the source of his way of thinking. Now, I want to ask you a question. Did Peter have a bad motive in this? And the, the answer is no. I don't think he did. Not at all. In Peter's mind and rationale, it actually made a lot of sense to voice his objection to what Jesus said. I mean, that, the cross didn't look like a great way to set up a kingdom, did it? It looked like the death of a king. 
And I think that Peter was speaking for all the disciples when he said it. Try to think about this objectively for a moment. I mean, it's easy for us to, you know, sit back and look at them and say, oh, those idiots, like, uh, like honestly, there was a cross, and then you, you know, there, there was a real meaning and stuff. Yeah, that's because we're looking after the cross back. But had we been looking ahead to the cross, it would have looked like an idiotic thing. I think we would have thought the same thing. I would have. Peter had just been tempted and succumbed to the temptation and wasn't even aware of it. He had no idea that he had just been had by Satan. Why? Because it was a perfectly rational thought. When Southland hit the crisis point, like Peter, many well-intentioned people acted on what seemed to them like their own rational thoughts. I'll say this softly because I don't think everybody had bad motives necessarily or weren't well-intentioned. It's just that the thoughts weren't God's thoughts. There were the fixers who jumped in to save the situation, but they did it apart from spirit direction. It sounds like the Christian thing to do, save people, fix things, rescue people, but it isn't always. Isaiah 45, 7 says, I bring prosperity and I create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Or they project onto a situation their own experience. And so they project their own experience onto something and think it must be the exact same. Job's friends did that. You know, some of the things that Job's friends said were actually true. The problem was they just weren't true for that situation. And they made matters much worse, not better. Uh, I remember a friend and I learned a lesson many, many years ago by a guy by the name of John Paul. I, I, won't, I won't say more than that. And the, he's a Christian leader, very well known. And he, he said, he said one day a brother in need had come to him. And, you know, the guy was really struggling financially. And John Paul pulled out his pulled out his checkbook and wrote out a check for this guy and handed it to him and he was so excited that he had done the Christian thing to do because after all when somebody's in need when you when somebody's got a problem we're supposed to help isn't that the Christian thing to do yes or no and the answer is yes he said he got to the car and he got in the car feeling so good about the kind of Christian he was and the Holy Spirit rebuked him in his vehicle and said John Paul you just got in the way of what I was trying to do in this brother's life. This brother's got a problem over here, and you just prolonged the work that I have to do in his life. You got in the way. Wow, that hit me. And if you read the scriptures, you'll find that many times. You see many instances. I just don't have time to go into that right now. Then there's the, <clears throat> some became blamers. And by the way, don't, don't, if you're angry right now, hold on. 
the rest of your life is at stake here, and people who are watching, don't throw your computer at the wall now. Wait to the end. I promise you, you'll be glad. Then there were, were the blamers and the judges, further destabilizing an already listing boat. They sized up the situation and assigned the blame. It seemed logical, but much of what was spread through media wasn't really fruit of the Spirit, was it? I mean, Galatians 5 says strife and jealousy and fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions come from the flesh. That doesn't come from the Spirit. Paul warns us not to listen to or think about such things, whatever is true and noble and right and pure and lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, think about such things. That's why I don't read that stuff. <laughs> People usually tell me that it's going on. And it just destabilized things even more. It seemed logical. Fixing seems logical. Judging and blaming sometimes does. You see something there and you... I'm, even if you don't have all the facts, it looks pretty obvious. And then there were the quitters. They gave up on the church. I mean, if that's what the church is all about, I quit. Listen, I, I, I'm not angry, okay? I, I really think the Spirit of Jesus is trying to tell us something today so that we can... Peter was rebuked, but guess what he said after that, Jesus said, when you return, you know what return is? Repent. When you return, strengthen your brothers. And Peter went on to have an amazing life. And I think that's what God wants to do with a lot of us here at Southland and with Southland itself. But we can't return if we don't know that we haven't been going in the right direction. Okay. Quitters give up. And it's easy. Sounds rational, doesn't it? I mean, if that's what church is all about, I'm done. Sounds rational. Sounds logical, but is it? Well, first of all, let me say this. Church problems, like family problems, aren't a 21st century development. Churches have always had problems. Did you know that the early church had lots of problems? In fact, most, most of your New Testament wouldn't be here. All the, most of the epistles wouldn't be in in your Bible if it wasn't for the problems they had. Because the epistles were written to address the problems in the churches. They had lots of problems. And if you go to the seven Asian churches in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 to 3, you know, sometimes we, uh, we kind of idolize and we just make these, the early church look like it was just like, wow, wow. If we had only lived then. It was full of sinners. Full of sinners. Five out of seven Asian churches failed their evaluation from Jesus. Only two passed. Second, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't give up on those churches? Aren't you glad he didn't give up on you? Aren't you glad that he doesn't give up on churches today? And you know something else that really helps me? Persecuted believers. I think about them all the time. Um, I thought about them this morning again. You know, we quit over 
such small things. Persecuted believers, you know what's going to happen today? There's 250,000, they figure, in North Korea alone in labor and prison camps. Uh, many of them have never, uh, many were born there. They, they, were, they weren't born on the other side of prison. Uh, Eleven were martyred yesterday, conservatively speaking. Another 11 probably have already died today because they're way ahead in their day. And another 11 will die tomorrow. Others kiss their husbands and their wives and their spouses or, and their children goodbye, not knowing that they would be arrested and imprisoned and beaten and raped today and never see their families again. You know what? When I look at those problems, and I, say, and I realize that most of those will make it to the next day to stand for Jesus. I have no right. What are my little problems? What are your little problems that you and I quit so easily? We sing the church. Who will help the church? That's a vow church when we sing that. We say, ah, we will help the church, the one that Christ loves. There's no place to quit in the kingdom of God. These actions seem like the rational thing to do, but those ideas in our minds didn't come from the spirit. They come from the flesh and the devil. But there's a fourth group in this church, a lot of them, intercessors. And I'm not just talking about official intercessors. I'm just talking about believers who prayed. Despite the fact that things looked bleak, and hopeless at times, there were many intercessors praying. They received the mind of, of, of Christ and the Spirit to direct their prayers. And this gave them strength to carry on and gave them hope and anchored them. God doesn't want us to depend on our own intellect, our own acquired wisdom, our own talents, our own experience, but on Him. Jesus said... In John 5, he said, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Where did this happen? In his prayer life, says Jesus, often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. But when we become self-confident, we pray less. It is the most insidious form of pride because we aren't aware that we have it. No amount of natural abilities gifts, spiritual gifts, training, intellect, expertise, experience is sufficient. Jesus said, apart from me, you can't do a thing. And he meant it. And for that, you need to remain and abide in the vine. Period. Period. John 15, that's what it's all about. Peter is an example of how a Christian and how a church can fail both an overt and a covert attack from the enemy. But Peter's failures are also our hope. Because Jesus said to Peter, when you return, strengthen your brothers. And, Peter, and Jesus was predicting that Peter was going to repent. And that after that, he would be greatly used. And wow, he went on to become a mighty force in the early church. And therein lies our hope. Repentance is part of prayer and fasting. Did you know that? That's what the Old Testament teaches us. 
And we have to go back and we have to examine ourselves in light of what the Holy Spirit shows us. Some of our, what we thought was rational, logical thinking, which was not of the Spirit and was not of God's eternal word. And we got to go back and repent and say, the reason is because we didn't spend time in prayer. And so we didn't make it. We failed. So what do we do? Self-inflict ourselves? You know, fly, you know take, take a whip and start whipping ourselves? Is that how we do it? No, we repent. That's how we do it. That's how we've always done it here. That's what the set frees are all about. We go back and we repent. We get up off the floor and we dust ourselves off and say, I hope I, lear I, I learned a lesson from that. Peter did. The disciples did. The early church did. They learned a lesson from their mistakes and from their sins because that's what they are. Let's just call them that, okay? Let's quit talking about owning stuff. Let's just say, that was sin. Lord, please forgive me. Boy, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive. forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all what? Yes. And then let's get back and say, God, forgive me for being prayerless and proud and arrogant depending on my own power, thinking that it was within myself, that I knew what I was doing. You and I can't do anything apart from him. Nothing. Zero. But I like it that when Peter repented, he went to serve God mightily. Aren't you? I am so thrilled about that. Yeah, I am. Church, we ran into trouble because we were self-sufficient, thinking we could do this, but we were no match for the enemy. But you know, the devil thought he had God's eternal plans and checkmate at the cross too. And what he didn't know was that after he, he had Christ crucified, there was a glorious resurrection. Amen? And Satan has been laughing over the last five, six months and he thinks he's got church uh, Southland right where he wants it. And he finally got her. And she's never going to rise to help the church again. But he couldn't be more wrong. He's overplayed his hand already many times. And if God's people will repent and get back to the business of prayer... This church will rise up. We will see a glorious resurrection of a church. What a testament to renewal that would be. Amen? Well, let's look at one example from history. <laughs> Two centuries after Luther, Protestantism had lost its soul. Sound familiar? Sounds like evangelicalism today. The Lutheran minister... P.J. Spinner, who lived from 1700 to 1760, hoped to revive it by promoting the practices of piety, meaning he's emphasizing prayer, things like prayer and Bible reading. Those are the two chief emphases. 
And it worked and spread quickly across Europe at that time in the 18th century, including the persecuted Protestants in Moravia and Bohemia, which is modern-day Czechoslovakia. The uh, Catholic Church cracked down on the dissidents who fled to neighboring Germany, and these persecuted believers, uh, these refugee believers, settled on lands of a rich young ruler. I love talking about this rich young ruler because he stands in contrast to the rich young ruler that Jesus met. And this rich young ruler's name was Count Zinzendorf, who himself was a pietist and was into prayer and Bible reading and so on and so forth. This count formed a community for persecuted believers called Hernhut, which means the Lord's Watch. And uh, for five years, uh, they were racked, they had been racked by dissension and bickering. These were believers, persecuted believers. And the count then structured them into bands consisting of two or three people of the same gender who met to open their hearts, confess sins, encourage, correct, and to pray for revival. Sounds like what we do in our set freeze. Only they were doing this on a, on a daily basis. And on August 27th, 24 men and 24 women covenanted to pray one hour each day at a scheduled time. Do you know how long that prayer meeting lasted? 100 years. 100 years. The story of what happened because of that prayer meeting is stunning. From that little group, uh, they sent out their first Protestant missionaries to the West Indies at that time. And, uh, and uh, they sent, by the time Count Zinzendorf died, the Moravians had sent out 226 missionaries, more than all Protestants together in the previous 200 years. Little group, for a short period of time, sent out more missionaries in that time than all the Protestants had in the previous 200 years. Phenomenal. That came out of that 100 years of praying. Incredible. And they went on to affect John Wesley. The Moravians did. They, they, they impacted John Wesley tremendously. In fact, he got saved because of them. Because he observed them. Without the Moravians, there wouldn't have been the first great awakening. Without the Moravians... William Wilberforce and the abolition of slavery would have never happened. And I could go on and on. What came out of that prayer meeting of a band of Moravian believers. God has a calling on this church to help the broader church. And if we will repent and pray much, God will again use us mightily. Listen, Jesus rebuked the disciples twice for their prayerlessness. And both times, because they failed both times. They couldn't, and because they didn't pray, they couldn't minister. They couldn't deliver others from the snatches of the enemy. And neither can we. And when they didn't pray, not only could they not help anyone else, they couldn't even withstand the enemy themselves, and they fell into temptation themselves. But if we'll repent 
and turn back to God. I believe he has a glorious resurrection for us. Lord, right now, if you're sitting there and listening in, and maybe the Holy Spirit's been convicting you. Maybe the Spirit of Christ has been rebuking you and saying, you've been doing this in your own strength. God is asking you by His Spirit this morning to repent, not to own it, not to make a little confession, but to repent and turn back from the way you've been doing it, self-sufficiency and pride, your own thinking, taking matters into your own hands not by the power of the Spirit, and certainly not according to the Word of God, not aligning with God's purposes. God says, repent. Repent. Do it now, believer. Do it now. Right now. That's what this month of prayer and fasting is about. And then say to the Lord, Lord, I am so sorry. And you may have to you may have to go to others and say, I'm so sorry for the way I behaved. I am so sorry. I handled things in my own flesh, not by the Spirit. And I listened to the thoughts of the enemy. It sounded so rational and so logical. But no more. I'm going to get up. And I'm going to begin to pray like I've never prayed before, and I'm going to be like Peter, and my life will be marked for the remainder of my days because of my failure. I want to turn it into a glorious victory by the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, help us towards that end, each and every one of us, me included. Lord, may there be a glorious resurrection in Jesus' name. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.